0: good morning first baptist new orleans my name is corey barnes Uh, i am one of the pastors here at first baptist our senior pastor chad gilbert is out this morning. He and his family have COVID. They're recovering. Things are going well. But just to to be safe, he's going to be out this week. And so we're going to be this morning continuing our sermon series on major truths from the minor prophets. The only change that we're going to make is we're going to be in the book of Zephaniah. Chad was going to preach Habakkuk today. I was going to preach Zephaniah next week. So he and I have just flip-flopped those books. So that's where we're going to be. So since Zephaniah can take some time to find, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and turn to the book of Zephaniah. Fanaya as we continue um our service. want to welcome you this morning, want to welcome our visitors, especially uh, if you're here with us this morning. And just, just want to let you know that you are just such a, a valued guest and guest of honor. One of the things that we would like to invite you to do if you haven't already is either fill out one of the visitor cards like Noah mentioned earlier or text the number that was on your screen. That will be on the screen again at the end of the service. And then also you can go out to our visitor desk after the service. If you do that for first-time visitors, we have a gift that we would love to give you this morning just to, to let you know how much we value your visit and value you being here at First Baptist New Orleans. Another thing I would like to invite you to do is that after the service, if you're not involved in one of our Bible study groups, whether you're a first-time visitor or whether you've been coming for a while or maybe even are a member and just are not plugged into a Bible study group, we would love to talk to you about our Bible study group. So if you would go out into the lobby after the service and go to the welcome desk, we would love to, to talk to you about how to get plugged in. Saw several people here this morning who are college students. And we have a lot of folks here that are uh, early career. Want to let you know about a new Bible study group that will be starting August 7th. Uh, Myself and Andrew Wilson, my wife Kayla and his wife Zoe are going to be leading a group for college and career students. So if you're college and early career, would love to talk to you this morning, either at the welcome desk or if you'd like this morning to sit in on the the Simons and Wong class, which meets in the the, uh, Sunday school room. You go out the doors just to the right. We'd love to talk with you about that this morning. Let's let's begin to to talk about the book of Zephaniah. So so Zephaniah is in the Minor Prophets. And as we look at the book of Zephaniah, we we need to just ask a few questions about Zephaniah in order to, to kind of prime the pump for hearing what God says to us through this prophecy. So even though Zephaniah has a a pretty large genealogy, in fact, we know more about uh, the genealogy of Zephaniah than we do about any other prophet. He goes back four generations, all the way back to Hezekiah, but we don't really know anything else about Zephaniah. In fact, even Hezekiah, that should be a familiar name to us, one of the kings uh, that we encounter in the Old Testament. And there's speculation about whether this was Hezekiah the king or another Hezekiah. And the truth is, we don't know. It it could go either way. And this actually reminds us something about the nature of prophecy in the Old Testament. And that is the, the prophet in his biography is rarely what's important. Some of the only exceptions of that would be like in the books of First and Second Kings, where we read about Elijah and Elisha, and a lot of the message of their ministries comes from their stories, what God does through them. But the majority of the writing prophets, what's important is not their biography, not their story, but instead this, this very simple truth that we hear in Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 1, and that is that the word of the Lord came to Zephaniah. So when we're reading the prophecy of Zephaniah, we want to be really clear that we are reading God's words to his people then. And by God's grace, God's words to his people now. Zephaniah is going to be prophesying during the the reign of King Josiah. And, And this raises some issues for us because Josiah's reign is a time of revival in Judah. Josiah is one of the good kings. In fact, I think as we read the Old Testament, Josiah is the first guy that we get to that say, hey, this this guy is really like David. In fact, maybe we even have some expectations that he could be better than David, though Josiah's story unfortunately ends in a disappointing way. But Zephaniah is ministering. He's prophesying during the reign of Josiah. But yet we're going to find that his message is not a message that we would expect during a time of revival. Jo- Josiah is, is undertaking these, uh, these measures of revival, he's destroying idols, he's purifying the temple, and we would expect Zephaniah then to come with a word of prophecy that says, you're doing great, keep at it. But instead, what we find in the word of the Lord in Zephaniah is a condemnation of the sin of all humanity, and of the nations, and of Judah and the people of God in particular might ask, how could this be? This is something I think that's understandable for us if we just think about the movement of the people of God throughout history. Later in this sermon, I'm I'm going to quote Jonathan Edwards, who was a a great preacher of the First Great Awakening. Jonathan Edwards is somebody for whom I just have tremendous respect. The First Great Awakening is a spiritual movement that I often look back to just as a a model for how biblical preaching and biblical truth can can be an incubator of revival among the people of God and how as as these men and, and women were giving themselves to the study of God's Word, the Spirit moved and graciously caused a revival in the colonies. And yet at the same time, if if I were transported back into the ministry of Jonathan Edwards, then I hope I would have the courage to stand before my brother and condemn, in the strongest possible terms, his own practice of slavery and his toleration of slavery among his culture and in his day. And I say this to say that it should not be hard for us to understand that even in times of revival, sin is persistent. So wherever it is that Zephaniah is ministering in Josiah's reforms, whether it's early and it's before his reforms have really taken place, or in the middle of them, we should not be surprised that there is sin to condemn. As we enter into reading Zephaniah, one thing that we need to be aware of is that he is going to talk quite a lot about the day of the Lord. In fact, our message this morning is going to be structured through just some truths about the nature of the coming day of the Lord. To understand the day of the Lord, I want us to think for a moment about the story of Robin Hood. It's a familiar story for us. I want to kind of call your attention just for the sake of convenience to a particular telling of Robin Hood. I think the best one, and that is the, the Walt Disney version of Robin Hood with the, the fox and little John as the bear. and Way better than any kind of Kevin Costner nonsense, right? Which I found out recently that Kevin Costner Robin Hood is Chad's favorite movie. He put that on the website, and that's, that's a deep embarrassment to me and to our church family but Chad's great otherwise. All right, so in Robin Hood, as, as Robin Hood, the story is being told, we think about what's happening with, with uh, Prince John and the Sheriff of Nottingham, and we think about the Disney movie, we think about kind of our, our other bad guys, like, like Sir Hiss, or the two buzzards who are the, the guards. And, and, and as, as we think about that, it seems throughout the, the movie, like, like they're the ones that are in control, and maybe they're the ones that are going to win. And then at the end of the movie, King Richard the Lionheart returns, and he has his day. So he comes back, and he has his day. The king has returned, and the king gets what he wants. And as the movie closes, all the good guys are celebrating. Robin Hood and Maid Marian get married. We see all of the merry men rejoicing. We see the people of Nottingham celebrating. And then as the movie closes, we see King or Prince John along with the bad guys in prison where they belong. Because King Richard has come and has had his day. The day of the Lord is a prominent theme in several Old Testament prophecies, especially Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Zephaniah and Zechariah. though it shows up throughout Old Testament prophecy in various ways. And it's a familiar concept. the audience of these prophets. So we're going to notice in Zephaniah, he doesn't tell us exactly what the day of the Lord is. He just tells us it's coming because people understand the day is going to come where the Lord returns and has his way. Things are going to happen the way he wants for them to happen. His enemies are going to be judged and his people, whoever they are, are going to be given the position that they should have as his people. And, And so, What we see in the prophets is they're often working with the assumption that God's people are ready for the day of the Lord. And at the same time, the the prophet's message usually comes to us about the day of the Lord, not telling us, hey, everybody, just hang in there. The day of the Lord is coming. Instead, the prophets warn us consistently that the day of the Lord is going to be a day filled with darkness and judgment. Listen to some of these passages, Joel chapter 2, verse 11. The Lord makes his voice heard in the presence of his army. His camp is very large. Those who carry out his command are powerful. Indeed, the day of the Lord is terrible and dreadful. Who can endure it? Amos 5, 18. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. What will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. Obadiah 15. For the day of the Lord is near against all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. What you deserve will return on your own head. Zephaniah, like the other prophets, is going to challenge us to consider what will our fate be when the day of the Lord comes. Here's what I'd like for us to do as we read through Zephaniah. I'd like for us to start with the end of his prophecy, which is going to be a message of hope. So I want us to know as we walk through what the day of the Lord means to us, that it's moving us towards a message of hope. But I want us to start with a message of hope, because as we go through this teaching, this, this prophecy, God's word to us about the day of the Lord, I want us to have this hope in view as we deal with the, the darkness and the judgment that we as God's people need to affirm is coming. I want to ask you to turn to Zephaniah chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 9. I'm going to ask you to stand together for the reading of God's word. These are the words of the Lord. Not just to Zephaniah and the people in his time, but the words of the Lord to us. For I will then restore pure speech to the peoples so that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him with a single purpose. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my supplicants, my dispersed people will bring an offering to me. On that day, you will not be put to shame because of everything you have done in rebelling against me. For then I will remove from among you your jubilant, arrogant people, and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. I will leave a meek and humble people among you. And they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will no longer do wrong or tell lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They will pasture and lie down with nothing to make them afraid. Sing for joy, daughter Zion. Shout loudly, Israel. Be glad and celebrate with all your heart. Daughter Jerusalem, the Lord has removed your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord is among you. You need no longer fear harm. On that day it will be said to Jerusalem, do not fear. Zion, do not let your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. He will delight in you singing. I will gather those who have been driven from the appointed festivals. They will be a tribute from you and a reproach on her. Yes, at that time, I will deal with all who oppress you. I will save the lame and gather the outcasts. I will make those who were disgraced throughout the earth receive praise and fame. At that time, I will bring you back. Yes, at that time, I will gather you. I will give you fame and praise among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, the Lord has spoken. Father God, we thank you for your word. And we ask, Father God, that as we walk through your word this morning, that you would speak to us from the truth of your word. Remind us, all gathered here this morning, that it's your word that has authority. And your word come from you, O oh perfect God. And so, Father, as I speak from the lips of a sinful man, if I say anything out of accordance with the truth of your word, then I pray that by grace your spirit would move, Drive the believers here to read your word for themselves. And if anything I've said is outside of the truth of your word, then Father, may you graciously allow these believers to identify it. And Father, may they in love come to me as their brother and address my error to me. Father, may I repent of that first before you and then before this body so that First Baptist New Orleans can move forward in purity of doctrine, not to puff us up, but instead that we would worship you in spirit and in truth and make disciples of New Orleans and the nations. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. I want us to look through this. I'm going to give just just three points of, of, of analyzing the day of the Lord in Zephaniah. We've read the hopeful part. We're going to return to the hopeful part. But as we move towards that, here's the first thing we're going to see. First, the day of the Lord is coming to all. The day of the Lord is coming to all. Second, and we'll go through these as we move forward, the second thing that we're going to see is that the day of the Lord is coming to God's people. So we're going to see the day of the Lord is coming to all, and in a special particular way, it's coming to God's people. And then lastly, we're going to see that the day of the Lord is coming for the salvation of the world as we look at those verses that we just read. So as we go through this, first, let's look at this. The day of the Lord is coming to all. This is God's word to us in Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. I will completely sweep away everything from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. I will sweep away people and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. That's how Zephaniah began this prophecy. So as God speaks through Zephaniah, he begins with these words. These words that everything is going to be swept away. Everything is going to be taken off the face of the earth. A very clear indication that the day of the Lord is coming as a force of God's judgment. And here's something I want us to realize as we consider this aspect of God's coming judgment in the day of the Lord. It is that the world in which we live is broken by sin and deserves God's judgment, and needs God's redemption. And I want to emphasize again, the world is broken by sin. So often we, we define sin in this way. We define sin as our spiritual mistake. Uh, just like it's some type of kind of holy oopsie. Oops, we, we wish we hadn't did, done that, and we'll try to do better, and that's basically what sin is. But that's not how sin is presented from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. As we see sin enter into the world in Genesis chapter three, we see that it brings about a curse on all of creation. In the Old Testament, we see people struggling, not only with their own sin, but in living in a sinful world. We see in the New Testament that Christ has come, not only to, to fix individual mistakes we have made, but to heal the world. And we are told in Revelation about a new heavens and a new earth that is a part of God's redemption of all of creation. So we need to understand the world itself is broken by sin. And if we don't grasp some concept of the brokenness of our world, it drastically limits our ability to think through our lives and to live our lives in a God-honoring way. Here's just two reasons. One, if, if we don't get this, we're going to think that we live in the world as it's supposed to be. And that, that's just going to gonna limit us as we try to, to process our own struggles in our own trials, because we're going to try to walk through the world thinking every single thing that happened is somehow happening the way that it's supposed to be. In other words, we're going to say, well, you know something, we just kind of got to make the best of this because this is what we've got and that's all there is. No, we live in a broken world that is in need of redemption We're going to talk in a moment about God's sovereignty. God is sovereign over this process, but we are living in a broken world, and we won't be able to understand our own lives. We will leave lives of of desperation and lives of depression if we don't understand that we live in a world that is broken by sin, which, by the way, explains why we do sinful things and why sinful things happen to us. Second, we'll be of no use as we counsel other people in Christian love if we keep telling them, that we are living in the world the way that it's supposed to be. Because what will happen is we will think that what we saw in the video earlier from the International Mission Board, that all we need, we'll just start thinking if we can just get so many wells, the water's there, and we'll get the water up, and we'll just do good deeds for the people, and the world will be as it's supposed to be. But that won't happen. The reason that we are partnering through Sin Relief with these acts of compassion is because we understand that a lack of water is a result of the brokenness of the world, but the core issue is not a lack of water, but a lack of fellowship with God because of the brokenness that sin has wrought on the world. So when we're looking at the day of the Lord, we need to understand that it should be be needed for us. We, We should value this, that God is going to exercise judgment over all of creation. Because all of creation needs God's redemption. And as we are going to find if it's going to experience God's redemption, then it must experience God's judgment. This tells us something. I want to emphasize this throughout our examination of Zephaniah. The fact that God can speak like this tells us something astounding about the nature of his sovereignty. The fact that he says, I'm going to judge all the world wipe all of it away. Even get specific here, talking about sweeping away the creatures and the birds and the things that live in the sea. God begins this prophecy with a message of judgment in the most general terms. And if we take God's proclamation here seriously, we realize there's not a person on this planet, no animal in a remote forest, no bird flying on some far-off migration, no creature yet to be discovered in the depths of the sea that is exempt from the judgment of God, because he's sovereign. Over all of it. But as we're looking at the day of the Lord coming to all, we see it not only in these general terms over all creations, but explicitly here about the nations. So I want us to to kind of think through this. As we're looking at the nations, we see this, especially as we look in chapter 2, verses 4 through 15. We're not going to read all of those verses. But as we look at chapter 1, in chapter 1 and verse 4, going all the way through verse 11, we we really see God's judgment against just all of humanity. And now in chapter 2, verses 4 through 15, He's going to judge the nations. In this section, God proclaims His judgment against those who who are thought to be outside the people of God. All of the nations he names, by the way, have a history of being active enemies of God's people at some time or another. Here's the nations he's going to name off. He's, he's going to start with the four cities of, of the coast. These are the Philistine cities. We're familiar with these if we read through the, the book of 1 of Samuel in Judges. He's going to say Gaza is going to be judged, and Ashkelon's going to be judged, Ashdod is going to be judged, and Ekron is going to be judged and he's going to go on. He's going to talk about nations. He's going to say Moab and Ammon, both of whom, by the way, have have historic genealogical ties with Israel. He says, they're going to be judged. He says, the Cushites, far off on the the south side of Egypt, they're going to be judged. And then in in verses 13 through 15, we have the, in chapter 2, we have the most explicit judgment coming against Assyria in general. And then Nineveh specifically, which we taught last week about the wickedness of Nineveh as Chad walked us through the book of Nahum. And so again, we see that here in Zephaniah, that that God is going to judge these nations. And then we see in in verse 11, and I want us to give some attention to verse 11 in chapter two, that, that again, God's sovereignty over these nations is absolute. So as God judges them, he's doing so with absolute sovereignty. Let's Listen to how the word tells us this. The Lord will be terrifying to them, meaning the nations. The Lord will be terrifying to them when he starves all the gods of the earth. Then all the distant coasts and islands of the nations, that's a way of saying even to the ends of the earth, will bow in worship to him each in its own place. Do you see how it's making that statement of absolute sovereignty here? That, that, that they're going to realize that without the true God, their gods would starve. Meaning they're not gods at all. All provision comes from the one true God. And so in the day of the Lord, when it comes, not only is humanity in general going to be judged, but, but in particular, the nations, the enemies of God are going to be judged. This is the nation of every nation and every individual. That the day is going to come in the day of the Lord where if for no other reason than they have experienced the terror of the Lord's judgment, that they're going to worship the Lord. Let me, let me tell you an Old Testament passage and a New Testament passage just helps us see this clearly. In Psalm chapter 2, we're told, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. And you know what the one who sits enthroned in the heaven does? He who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs because he's sovereign over the nations. We see this truth again in Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, that because of the sovereignty that Jesus has won through his death and suffering and resurrection, because of that sovereignty... That the name of Jesus, the day is coming that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Where where I grew up, where there was just a lot of old country preachers, I heard these guys all the time say something in a very direct, very true way. This is telling us, you can bow now or bow later, but the day is coming where for every individual, every nation, they are going to bow before God in His judgment. Let me just give us three quick points of application as we ponder this truth that that God is going to have his day. He's going to have his day among all peoples and among all the nations. First, as we face a chaotic world, this should remind us God's victory is imminent. And we need to consider this through the lens of of Judah because we got to remember in Zephaniah's day, Zephaniah is not prophesying to a nation that looks at itself as a, a mighty nation on the global scale. Little bitty Judah, with Assyria to the north and Babylon growing and Egypt to the south, surrounded by superpowers, historically kind of traded around as who was in control of of this region and to this, this little bitty country with their little bitty army and their seemingly insignificant king. God speaks the truth that I am moving all of global history, all global power for my glory. So that the God of Judah is the God in whom they can place ultimate hope. And we have to make sure that that is also our hope because it's tempting for us who live in a very different national context. So many blessings for us about living in this great country. But sisters and brothers, I just want to remind us great countries have come before. And, and if we follow the pattern of history, we should expect that the day will come where, where the, the, the favors of history changes towards our nation, but the favors of our God will never change. And who is in control? Some of you in your lifetime have seen superpowers shift, but the power of the Lord God Almighty will never shift. He is sovereign over the, nature, over the nations. Secondly, as we consider this, so, so it tells us that God's victory is imminent in a chaotic world. It also tells us it, it shatters what, what we can call the, the pluralistic orthodoxy of our day. Let me tell you what I mean there. It, it's polite to say in our culture, it's polite to say in Western culture, you know something, all, all religions are really equal. All religions are kind of going to get you to the same place. And it can be trendy for us to say these kinds of things. Not only that, but, but those of us who have Friendships. I'm, I'm so blessed to have friendships with, with people who are not believers. And I say I'm blessed by that because they're image bearers who bless me. And I say that because I have an opportunity to share Christ with them. But, but those of us who have friends or relatives that are not believers, they're following other religions, we can feel the pressure of our contemporary society to just say, hey, look, you're, you're good. You're a good person. Whatever happens to you, that's, that's gonna get you to heaven in the end. But, but this truth that God is going to judge the nations, that their gods are false gods, that God's going to starve them out. It shatters that. And it means for us that it is in no way loving for us to look at people who believe in other religions, believe in other gods and in false religions, and look at them and say, you're good. Because what's loving is for me to tell them the day of the Lord is coming. And he's coming with wrath. And you need to repent and believe in the one true God. I want to be very clear on something. This truth, this, this truth that, that, that God is sovereign and that all other religions are worshiping false gods, it's, it's not the sort of truth that should ever cause you to, to shed blood. It's the sort of truth that might drive you for your blood to be shed. But it's not the sort of truth that should cause you to, to shed blood. One of the things we actually believe as Baptists is that we believe that what is best for the proclamation of the gospel is to have what we would call religious liberty. I want governments to just just allow people to practice their religion because I believe that the gospel is true. And because I believe the gospel is true, not only am I going to proclaim the gospel in my country, regardless of what happens, but I understand that God might call me out of obedience to proclaim his love to those who are worshiping false gods, to be bold with that truth. And if my blood is shed, what can happen other than the victory of the lamb to be perpetuated through my sacrifice? But I want us to be very clear in this. This is not an excuse for us to beat the drum that we are somehow superior. We are beating the drum that our God is the true God and it is loving to proclaim it as such to the nations. And then thirdly, God's sovereignty, as we should be able to see here, over the nations drives the passion and confidence of our mission. As Christ sends us on mission, what what does he say first? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me, he says. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. So as we consider this truth, that the day of the Lord is coming to the nations, we tie that to the missional imperative that King Jesus has given us. He's sovereign over the nations. He has told us to make disciples of the nations and we will be successful in our mission not because of our strategies, not because of our faithfulness or our holiness, but because of the power of God who is the one true God, sovereign over the nations. And we are reminded of this when we are reminded that the day of the Lord is coming to all peoples. Second, the day of the Lord is coming. Day of the Lord is coming to all. Second, the day of the Lord is coming to God's people in a particular way. I want us to look here at verses chapter one, verses one through thirteen, and then we're also going to look briefly at chapter three, one through seven. I want to read to you the words of the Lord in in Zephaniah chapter one verses four through seven. So what God tells us after he's made this broadest proclamation that God's going to judge all the earth. Then it says, I'll stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the residents of Jerusalem. I will cut off every vestige of Baal from this place, the names of the pagan priests along with the priests, those who bow and worship on the rooftop to the stars in the sky, those who bow and pledge loyalty to the Lord, but also pledge loyalty to Milcom. And those who turn back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him, be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. Indeed, the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated his guests. So, so far, we've talked about what happens when God has his days among people generally, among all creation, what happens when God has his days among the pagan nations, now let's turn our attention to a question that is so important to the prophets when they speak about what happens when God has his day. What becomes of the people who see themselves as part of God's people? What happens to, to those of us when God has his day? This is an important question for us because the vast majority of us, whether we're, we're members here, whether we're visitors here, whether we're committed Christians, or, or you just came this morning because you're thinking, hey, Christianity might, might have something to offer. All of us are in this sphere. Saying, you know something, we, we, are, we are part of or, or considering being part of the people of God. So, so this matters so much to us. What will become of us when the day of the Lord comes? And for many of us, it's not the vindication that we expect. Think about Robin Hood again. We, we all want to be a part of the, the wedding party. That, 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 that Robin Hood and made Mary and had been married, and the good guys are, are jubilant, and, and, and there's prosperity. We want to be there. We need to consider, based on the, the words of Zephaniah and the, the witness of the entire Bible, that many who count themselves as a part of the people of God will find themselves on the wrong side of the day of the Lord when it arrives. Zephaniah gives us a, a long list of how sin has infected those who identify as God's people. Just look at the text as I call out some of these. Look at verse 4 in the beginning of verse 5. See how prevalent idolatry is among those who claim to be God's people? Look at, look at the end of verse 5. We see this again in verse 8, though in verse 8 it, it, it seems a little different. In verse 8 we, we, we talk about those who are dressed in foreign clothing, but, but in verse 5 at the end of it in a, a very direct way, that there are those who pledge loyalty to the Lord, but also pledge loyalty to Milcom, to a false god, that's so what we would call syncretism. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Look at verse 6. Those who have just turned away from following the Lord. That, that's what we would call apostasy. They, they, they were part of the people of God, but they have really just abandoned it. Verse 9, improper worship. Also in verse 9, deceit and violence are rampant among the people of God. Look at verse 12. We're going we're to look at verse 12. Spiritual apathy. Those who say God will, God will do nothing for good or for bad. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, we're going to have a long list of corrupt leaders. The kings are corrupt, and the prophets are corrupt, and the priests are corrupt. And then all of chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, which we're going to turn to at the end, they're going to, they're going to be telling us about a corrupt Jerusalem. That, that This place, which claims to be the, the place where God has established his headquarters upon the earth, is in and of itself corrupt. All of these things happening among The people of God. I want to, just as an example, and because I see them as things that are so prevalent, and by the way, to diagnose these things as prevalent, I'm not looking at your lives. I'm looking at my life. So based on the diagnosis of the mirror, I want to look at two of these sins that I just find so easy for us to fall into, so easy for me to fall into. Look at the second part of verse 5 again. This is what we would call syncretism. Let me tell you what syncretism is. These are folks That as the day of the Lord approaches, tell you, sure, we we worship the Lord. So if if Zephaniah comes to them and says, do you worship the Lord? Sure, we worship the Lord. But as the day of the Lord approaches, they're not just worshiping the Lord. They're out on their rooftops praying to the stars. And they're praying to the god Milcom, who's who's the, the chief god of the Ammonites. So this is what syncretism is. It's keeping elements of worship of the true God, especially the name of God. But mixing in other, more culturally acceptable and recognizable worship. There's places that you go today where this, this actually happens in a lot of ways, very much in the same way that it's happening in the, 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 the book of Zephaniah and happening in the Old Testament and in Israel, where people are struggling to, to put away foreign gods. And so I've been places personally. Chad and I have talked about being places before. Some of you have been places where that's the struggle. The gospel has come, people have heard the good news of Christ, but as it is proclaimed, some people are picking it up and they're saying, Yeah, I worship Jesus, but I still worship my ancestors, or I still worship whatever type of kind of animism is prevalent in my culture. In our culture, I think it often looks much different. Here's some common expressions of syncretism that we often see in our culture. Things like this. This this is the one that, that I feel pressured towards. I'm a Christian. But I really feel that all people should just live their truth. You know why I'm pressured towards that church? Because I live in a society and you live in a society where we are told that's just what it means for us to be a good guy. Is to tell people. I just want you to live your truth. But, but I want us to see that, that having that claim, based on what we just saw about God being sovereign over all creation, that God is, the day the Lord is coming as a judgment upon sin, all of these things coming together are, are showing us, that's just as contradictory as saying, yeah, I pray to the Lord and also to Milcom. I cannot be a Christian and encourage you, just live your truth. Because I got to tell you, if I actually am, am standing on the word, I should not care in my life what my truth is, and I shouldn't care in your life what your truth is, except to the point that my truth and your truth are lining up saying, we just desire to live out God's truth. But we have to put God's truth as the ultimate authority. Here's a second way that we see this. Whenever I go and, and, and share the gospel with others, this, I find this happening pretty often as, as I share the three circles. Uh. You share the three circles. And one of the reasons that we really kind of talk about the three circles, and if you're a visitor with us and you haven't seen the three circles, we bring this up often as we go through our, our worship services. So you'll, you'll see that soon if you keep returning. But it's just an evangelistic tool. And one of the things I like about it is it really gives you this, this visible j- just representation of, hey, help me locate. Where are you? are you? Are you near God because of Christ or are you far from God? And so many times as I'm talking with people, I say, I'm near God. And then the next word's out of their mouth. I'm near God. You know, I'm just working hard to make sure the good I do outweighs the bad. That's not the gospel. That's not Christianity. That, that, that's, that's just our paganism. We have to be careful, church, that we protect ourselves against these types of thoughts. Because something we're going to see as we come to the end of this, of how in the world does this judgment work towards our salvation? We're going to see it cannot be because our good outweighs our bad. Because we are infected with bad and we'll find nothing good if we're just looking inside of ourselves. It's gonna to have to come from somewhere else. Look at verse 12 as well. Look at this spiritual apathy. Again, it's the diagnosis of the mirror. God finds these spiritually apathetic people, by the way. If you look at, at chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, it says he's gonna come into Jerusalem, it says he's gonna to, going to come into the, the fish gate. It says there's going to be wailing in the second district, a crash from the hills, the, the residents of the hollow and the merchants. Basically, it's, it's God coming into the city and walking through the quarter and going to the marketplace. He's coming to the city and he's methodically searching it. And then we're going to be told as we get to verse 12 and as we come through verse 11, that, that what's he going to do? As he comes, he's going to punish those who have settled down comfortably, comfortably as he searches Jerusalem with lamps. Who are saying to themselves, the Lord will not do good or evil. What does God find as He methodically searches this city that's supposed to be where the people of God live? He's gonna find spiritually apathetic people who are saying, you know something, I don't really think God matters that much to me. As I started reading through Zephaniah several weeks ago to prepare for this message, I came under conviction that God does not have to wonder dark corridors of the church to find people like that because as I stand before you in the pulpit I confess that whenever I read this my initial response was God that's so often me that I live my life in a sort of functional atheism where I confess that you are God but in the way that I conduct my life I live it like it's all up to me And you're not really going to do anything for good or for evil. So it's up to me to avoid sin, up to me to hide my sin, and up to me to create my good. That's a spiritual apathy and a functional atheism. At its core, our struggle with spiritual apathy is based on the same selfism that drives our idolatry and our syncretism. That we live in a culture where our default is to worship ourselves and not to worship God. The day of the Lord is coming. It's coming to all. It's coming to God's people. Before we come into the last point here, I want us to just take a brief pause. So think about what the day of the Lord means about our sin. Imagine you're a part of the audience. Zephaniah is proclaiming these words. You're hearing these words... And here's a prophet telling you that God's going to remove everything from creation, cut off all mankind from the face of the earth. And as we transfer that message over to our contemporary Christian culture, it's next to impossible to imagine somebody coming to us with that message. Yet, God comes to us with that message right here in Zephaniah chapter 1 and chapter 2. One of the biggest reasons we don't throw ourselves on the grace of God is that we've given no attention to God's revelation of the depth of our sin and how our holy God despises sin. These are the words of Jonathan Edwards. This is from a a relatively famous sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I'll just tell you, whenever I went to to high school, this this was just part of the public school curriculum in Georgia, we read this. And here was kind of the the way the textbook guided us through it. Those angry, angry Puritans just were, they they were just mad all the time. Puritans like Jonathan Edwards said this, sisters and brothers, because they had read the Bible. And so you say things like this. The bow of God's wrath is bent, the arrow made ready on the string, and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow. And it's nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God, without any promise or obligation at all, that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Why does Jonathan Edwards say that? Because he's read Zephaniah 1.17 for one I'll bring distress on mankind. They'll walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. You're not going to see that sewn into a throw pillow at a Christian bookstore. What a stark distinction from the ear-tickling messages of our present day where we coo about a positive and uplifting message and fill megachurch stadiums with people who are proclaiming the, the message that God wants you to be healthy and God wants you to be wealthy and God wants you to be successful. And what I see in the word of God is that the day of the Lord is coming to all people, to all of humanity, generally to the nations and upon many who count themselves as among the people of God with wrath and judgment. So how can it be true? that the day of the Lord is coming for the salvation of the world. Let's turn to those verses that we talked about just a moment ago. There's two things happening in Zephaniah chapter 3. As we get to our last point, the day of the Lord is coming for the salvation of the world. There's two things happening in chapter 3 that are important for understanding the message of Zephaniah as he turns this message of despair towards a message of hope. Here's the first one. At the end of chapter 2, we've had the condemnation of Nineveh. So if you come to the end of chapter 2, you're going to pick it up in verse 13. You're going to go through verse 15, and you're going to be reading about the wicked city Nineveh. And and then in our English translations, there's something there that's super helpful, but but actually obscures something for us in this passage. There's probably a header at the beginning of chapter 3 that says, Woe to the oppressive Jerusalem, or woe to unrepentant Jerusalem, or something like that. But remember... That, that's, that's not a part of inspired scripture. That's just there to help us read. So if you were reading, you would have read this. You would have read in verse 15, this, Nineveh is the jubilant city that lives in security, that thinks to herself, I exist and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become. A place for wild animals to lie down. Everyone who passes by her scoffs and shakes his fist. And then you'd read right into, woe to that city that is rebellious and defiled, the oppressive city she has not obeyed. And only then would you realize that we've shifted because it continues. She's not accepted discipline. She's not trusting the Lord. She's not drawn near to her God. And by the time you come to to, uh, verse 4, you're going to realize we're talking about Jerusalem now. Jerusalem looks like Nineveh. And if you were reading it without that heading, you would catch that. the the oppressive city, Nineveh, the the capital of God's enemies. That's what Jerusalem looks like now. Jerusalem is broken. And so one of the things that we see here is that Jerusalem itself is broken. Its purpose is broken. But then we see this. Look at verse 8. Here's the second shift in chapter 3. So so 1 through 8 of chapter 3, condemning Jerusalem. It's broken. It's it's not functioning like God's headquarters anymore. It's, It's filled with liars and corrupt officials. Then verse 8, therefore, so what do we do now that Jerusalem is broken? Therefore, wait for me. This is the Lord's declaration. Until the day I rise up for plunder, for my decision is to gather nations to assemble kingdoms in order to pour out my indignation on them, all my burning anger, for the whole earth will be consumed by the fire of my jealousy. Then verse 9, for I will then restore pure speech to the peoples. And you know what you're actually going to read as you read through 9 through 20? If you scan through that a second time? Actually, what's happening is the purpose of Jerusalem is now going to be restored. After the day of the Lord comes, now it's the blessed city. Now it's the city where the nations come in to worship God. Now God, instead of sweeping away all of creation, is gathering them into himself, into Jerusalem. This is now giving us a picture after the day of the Lord. Now we have the new Jerusalem that that John sees in his vision in Revelation 21 and 22. It's been restored and it's as it should be. Through the judgment God pours out when he has his day, God achieves the purification of his people. Zephaniah began to address the question we all should have in chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. He said in chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, he said, if the day of God is so calamitous, how can we escape? The command we are given in Zephaniah 2, 3 says this, seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who carry out what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be concealed on the day of the Lord's anger. we got those instructions what do you do if you want to repent you throw yourself on the mercy of god you humble yourself say perhaps he will spare me and now in verse 8 and 9 we get even more explicit instructions because we are told wait for the lord because somehow through judgment he's doing something that purifies us how can we be on the right side of the story think one more time about the robin hood story How can we be sure that we are on God's side when he comes? How can we be sure that we're going to be the ones that are jubilant, that experience the blessings of the, the restored creation after God has judged sin and wickedness out of his righteousness? How can we be sure that it's going to be a day that for us is a day of hope? And there's two things that, that, that Zephaniah points us towards. The first is to humble yourself, and the second is to wait on the Lord. And sisters and brothers, I'm going to tell you, that throws us to the gospel. It throws us to the gospel. The people of God in the Old Testament were told that their sin was serious and that God's judgment was was coming. They were also told that God was going to preserve them through that judgment. When God judged the world, they were told that God would preserve a remnant through that judgment. Those in this remnant were not based on lineage. So you weren't in the remnant because you had the right mom and dad. You weren't in the remnant because you had the right skill. You weren't in the remnant because you were better than other people. You were in the remnant because you threw yourself on the mercy of Christ, mercy of God, humbled yourself, and waited to see what God was going to do to rescue you from the coming judgment. And all this causes us to expect something, that God is going to preserve those who fling themselves on him for mercy and to preserve them through the coming judgment. This is what Christ accomplishes. The Old Testament tells us what is going to happen. God is going to preserve us through judgment. We're not told how yet, but he's going to preserve us. And the New Testament tells us how. How are we to be preserved through judgment? Because we read all this, and as we went through those sins, we should have understood. We do those things. We are a part of the people who say we're the people of God, yet are deserving of God's judgment. How will we be preserved? Humble yourself, so don't think it's going to be because you're great and the Lord is going to do something. Wait on him. What does he do? He sends Christ Jesus. Romans tells us this, that Christ Jesus, he tells us that the righteousness of God is not not through doing work so you escape judgment, but the righteousness of God is through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe, since there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God has put forward as a propitiation, meaning that God has placed his wrath and his judgment on Christ. Who is it that bears the judgment that believers should have suffered in the coming day? Christ. He bears the judgment. So what do we do? We humble ourselves. And the true humility that we can have is we're saying, are we on the right side of this? Are we on the right side of the day of the Lord? The only response that we can have is to say, God, we we cannot do it. We humble ourselves and we throw ourselves under the mercy of Christ, the one who has paid the price, the one who has taken your wrath and given us his righteousness. That's what it means to be on God's side on the day of the Lord is, are you in Christ? As we close, sisters and brothers, listen, when in eternity, when the chaff of this sinful world has blown away because God has righteously judged sin and sinners, in the new heavens and the new earth, if one person asks another, how how did you get on the right side of this story? How were you on the right side of the day of the Lord? There will be no proud answers. No one will say, I was good enough. No one will say, I was worthy. These are the only words that will be acceptable. Something like the words of the old hymn. Why am I here? Why did I escape God's wrath? Alas, and did my Savior bleed? And did my sovereign die? Did he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? It will not be me lifting myself up saying, I got here because I deserved it. It will be my confession. I am a sinner. I was worthy of God's judgment. I deserve to be on the wrong side of the day of the Lord. But God by grace allowed me to humble myself and throw myself on King Jesus and all because of him I'm saved. I'm going to pray and then in just a moment we're going to have an opportunity to respond. Just want to encourage you, if you you are here, and you've been struggling through your, your spiritual walk, you've been struggling through life, and you've been counting on religious practice, or you've been counting on self-righteousness, or you've been counting on God just being passive, that that's what's going to get you through. I want to encourage you, sister or brother, today to throw yourself on the mercy of King Jesus. That is a confession that what you need is not to become better. What you need is to be saved from the wrath that is to come. That's what Christianity is. What a relationship with Christ is, is to realize that Jesus has paid the price so that you can come and enter a relationship with him and be on his side so that when his day comes, he is going to call you into the kingdom by grace. As we pray, I want to challenge you to, to reflect on what God is calling you to do. I'm going to be at the front. Pastor Noah is going to be in the front. We're also going to have a number on the screen that you can text if you want to talk to a pastor about making a decision. Let's pray together. Father God, we love you. We thank you for your goodness to us. And Father, we ask this morning that your spirit would move among us. Father, we pray that you would make it very clear to us how we are to react to this message. Father, for those of us who have been saved by King Jesus and who in this moment as we are asking ourselves the question, why are we going to be on the right side of this this coming day when you judge sin and establish your glory We confess that it's only because of Jesus, and so may that drive us to worship, and drive us to obedience, and drive us to mission. And Father God, if any of us are gathered here and we realize that we have been trusting in something else or nothing at all, then may we be convicted of the gravity of our sin, that we are broken people in a broken world who sin and are sinned against, and throw ourselves on the mercy of Jesus, who has borne the wrath that we deserved, and has counted us members of his kingdom by grace. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.